Guess what? We've just started our very own Catching Up With Cub community and we want you to be part of it. Head to cub.club forward slash podcast and subscribe today to receive a weekly email with exclusive content from every episode. Have the ability to speak directly with our Catching Up With Cub team to help us build the best show possible and receive invites to special events where you'll meet and hear from our guests along with other incredible business owners. Head to cub.club forward slash podcast now and join the community. Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, we're catching up again with Cub member Andrew Billy Baxter, one of Australia's absolute marketing kings and one of my favorite people to speak to, hence why we got him on the show again. Andrew has been uh, the CEO of some of the largest ad agencies in our country, including Ogilvy and Publicist. And today he shares some fundamentals that we all need to know about business branding, customer experience, and business planning. I'm telling you, you do not want to miss out on this episode because you're going to walk away a better leader and business person. Enjoy the show. life so talking about your apple headphones they're 900 bucks yeah 888 or something amazing what's, though yeah i gotta get them yeah what, what, what's different about them oh, nothing they're just beautiful oh, nothing beautifully designed <laughs> beautifully designed like apple bigger so that they really do fit over your ears properly oh sorry so they're not the airpods no, no, they're these proper. are proper these are proper like these yeah. are beats uh, the, like beats but apple correct and they've they've for the first time ever they've released them and they're just incredible sound yeah amazing Wow. Okay. Now I won't get them. I would have got, <laughs> I would have gotten um, the AirPods because I just think the AirPods have literally changed my life. Yeah. Like, do you remember when you first started seeing people walk around with AirPods? You're like, who are these crazy people? You know, talking to themselves walking around. And now if you see someone with this drink, like with the wires, you're like, peasant. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the fuck is that? There's the little ones in your ears. Yeah. No. AirPods. No, it's it, quite good for home. Those Apple ones are pretty good. Yeah. Um. So last time we got cut a bit short because there was construction going on in my apartment. Um, but that has made you the first person uh, or first guest to ever come on the podcast and to do one episode in the apartment and now you're in the studio. So uh, congratulations. It's a very, very large honor. I wish I had an award for you. What an incredible group of people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, we had breakfast not too long ago. And I was just like, holy shit, we need to do another episode because um, you were just lighting my brain on fire with some 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 branding knowledge. And and I really wanted to, to focus on that today and to talk about um, with the listeners branding, uh, the all the stuff you're telling me about customer experience um, and, and just business planning in general. Because, I mean, everyone's like, yeah, yeah we've got, we got a plan, we've got a plan, we've got a business plan. And like even me, I'm like, okay, well, do we have a plan? Yeah, we have a plan. Like if you asked – Alice and Anthony and Ollie, uh, you know, what, what's Cub's plan? What are we doing over the next few years? They'd probably be able to tell you, but we don't have a written plan. And, like, you, you couldn't – like, what's supposed to be in the plan? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that, that would be a question I have. So I want to talk about all that. But why don't we, um, why don't we kick off with, with branding? And so, f- first of all, where did branding start? Like, is this a new science or is this something that is, has been around a while? So my answer, this is normally the trick question I ask. 
Uh, it's actually more than 5,000 years old. And people just go, the penny just drops when I say what I'm about to say. So branding literally came from branding animals, right? If you are a goat farmer in 3000 BC and you're going down to the market and you needed to make sure that everyone knew that that was your goat and not somebody else's goat, um, you put on there a symbol or a letter or a hieroglyphic to highlight that it was your farm. And you then, over time, they then put maybe what the breed was as well. And then what would happen is they'd be down at the markets and all of a sudden one farmer was getting a lot more for their goat or their donkey or their horse or their sheep or their cow than the other people. And then all the other farmers would be going, why is that person getting 10% more? And actually the goats look like shinier and they're a bit plumper and what's this guy doing? And it, it would turn out that, you know, maybe that goat farmer would take the goats down to the stream every afternoon and have a drink and eat the long grass and that's how he fattened them up or she fattened them up or whatever it might have been. But the point was that that brand on that goat came to mean that that was a better quality goat or donkey or horse or whatever it might have been. So that's where branding came from. And when you think about it today, branding helps us meaningfully choose something, right? The most confusing brand environment most of us walk into is a wine shop, right? There's between 600 and 1,000 brands in some of those. That's actually – that's probably the truest statement that's ever been said. When I walk into a wine <laughs> store, I'm like, what is going on? And 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 very often, like, I'll just look for the penfolds. <laughs> you know, like it's, yeah. it's the And that's one. the brand, right? And there's not many wine brands that spend a lot on advertising. Those that have over the years, like the Wolf Blasses and some of those others beyond the penfolds have done very well because they become well-known brands. So it, it, it gives you meaningful choice. It makes you, once you've had it and you like it, you go back in there and you look for exactly what you did, that brand. So that's really where the history of brands came from. It's, it sounds so obvious in hindsight, but, um, and there's still the oldest, the, uh, the, some of the oldest advertising and oldest branding still sits in places like Pompeii and, and you know, um, so you can still see um, some that's of That's amazing. Yeah. How did you, like, how do people think of this stuff? Like, I mean, it makes sense that that's where it would become. That's where it would come from. But like, someone had to study that and, and you know, I guess learn it and spread yeah. the word, and then understand, you know, how it and how it became more powerful. And you know, there's always there's that famous quote um, that I think it's attributed always to the wrong person, but I think it's a guy from a, uh, the CEO from United Biscuits. But he effectively said, you know, our buildings can fall down. You know, we can lose all our trucks and all our assets, but you know, what we've still got left is our brands of our biscuits or our Coca-Cola or whatever it might be. And at one point in 2000, I think Coca-Cola was a company that they had a look at and 85% of the worth of the company was in the brand. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Coca-Cola is uh, – honestly, I and but see, this was scary. You can't even verbalise why it's good, you know, why the brand's <laughs> good. But you don't even – like it, it, it's kind of hard. Like you sit there and say, okay, the Coca-Cola brand, why is that so valuable? Like when I see it, yeah, okay, I know that's Coke because of the red sway things and the bubbles or whatever that, whatever it is. But what? why is that valuable? Why is that important? Yeah. I'm actually curious. Yeah. Well, brands actually live in our hearts and minds. Not yeah. We don't rationally choose brands, right? So 95% of the decisions we make are emotional. We post-rationalize them. Right, So we buy a new car and you might want a luxury car, you might want whatever car, right? And we buy them 
and afterwards, when someone says, "Oh, you bought a Tesla or you bought a why'd you get Audi, that? Why'd you get that? Oh, well, it's you know the let fourth, me think about it. You know, it's it's the, it's the equal wheel balance between them. It's the it's the motor. It's this and that. You post rationalise why you buy. That's the rational part. But we emotionally buy. Uh, 95% of the time. There's a huge behavioural science study done by Daniel Kahneman. He won a Nobel Prize for behavioural economics about 20 years ago in unpacking a lot of this around how how we buy um, brands um, and products. And so, so you're saying the power of that, the power of Coca-Cola, it's hard to talk about because it's more an emotional thing rather than a logical thing. Yes. You know, like I go to the store, I see the thing, ah, I'm just going to take that. Why'd you get a Coke? I don't know. Well, <laughs> And, and again, you can post rationalize it, but yeah. at the time you go, you know, I just, I, I've had it before. I know that feeling. I love it. I'm going to have one. And so what would you describe as a brand? What, how would you describe branding a brand? Yeah, well, uh, it tends to be from a, if you go back to my um, example with the farmers, it's a brand mark that we first and foremost pick up on, you know, and, and often when I'm, when I'm doing a bit of this stuff in the, uh, in, in, at the university, when I'm teaching or guest lecturing or whatever, um, I'll put up like, you know, you can put the swoosh up of Nike and without putting the word Nike underneath, everyone goes, it's Nike. Um, you can put the BMW, just the blue and white, you know, check, or the Mercedes, or the, Mercedes and in, or the Jaguar logo and people just know that you don't have to explain what the brand is. So, um, and often people go to trivia nights and that's one of the things that they do, right? They'll, they'll have a whole section on what brand is this um, with by putting a logo up there. So it's the brand mark that first and foremost happens. And then we have almost brand assets that go with that, right? Some people um, will have music that reminds them of the brand. I mean, if McDonald's, it doesn't matter if an orchestra played that, whether a guitar played that, whether someone hummed it like me, whether someone sang it, you would know it's McDonald's. Um, Cadbury, what colour is Cadbury? Ooh, blue. (laughs) Wait, wait, Laura's looking like a fucking idiot. No, I don't know. Purple. Oh, yeah, I knew that. Well, it's like a dark blue. It's kind of, a, I don't know, I ate lint. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, so <laughs> Lint's you know, like white. Yeah, So, th- and then brands like ING will be orange. And so people have an association with that. And then sometimes. Um, Fuck, you know, we have to delete that stupid <laughs> question. <laughs> I just lost the respect of at least a thousand people. Means you're not a chocoholic. Yeah. That's, the, that's the main thing. <laughs> no, no, I have a lint chocolate, <laughs> caramel or almond. <laughs> so, so there's all these things that then become, you know, it could be a col- colours, as I mentioned, sound, could be anything that, that you pick up that's that's your sort of little thing that you own from a brand point of view. Uh, it could be a shape of a bottle sometimes. It could be anything. So um, that's that's some of the brand recall that we're looking for. Um yeah. So, but look, yeah. There's a whole. There is a whole theory behind where brands come from. Yes, but it it must be incredibly hard to actually build these amazing brands. A, there's not that many of them compared to how many businesses there are in the world. Um, and and B, how do you actually do it? Like, you know, okay, at Cub, we're trying to build a brand, and yes, do a lot of people know it? Hundred percent. Does it? Does it? create an emotive response to people yet? I don't know, but probably not. Like it, maybe it does for the existing members, does it for the non-member? And how do you even know that stuff? Yeah. So interestingly, the, I think the most the, the simplest and the best brand theory model in my mind was done by a guy called David Acker, double A-K-E-R, for those that jump on the Google. Um, and and it, it was in the sort of the mid to late 90s. And he effectively said there's four main pillars of a brand. So are these and these pillars would be 
how do you actually make a strong brand? Correct, yes. And there's now been studies done over lengths of time by people who are based on these pillars. Um, you know, WPP, for example, have got one called Brand Asset Valuator. They they basically u- utilised and worked with him at the time to build out the, the study uh, of, of actually then tracking how brands were performing on these pillars. Mm-hmm. So one of the first one you've got to do if you're starting a brand is to be, to be different. How do you drive differentiation? Um, and, you know, like anything, I'm, when you started Cub, you would have gone, well, I want to be different to these other main brands. You know, you could pr- pretty much, I'm guessing, reel off. No, we did. Well, we said we want to – so there was a whole – Cub's confusion actually came to who are we being different than. Mm. That was our big major confusion. So if we were being different to business networking, we were premium. We were it was it was wasn't lame, ineffective, attacking. You weren't meeting a cat breeder. You were meeting other great entrepreneurs and business owners in a beautiful environment with the help of a supportive team that were making sure you're meeting the right people. So it was it was a pre, it was a higher level networking service, and and I largely feel like that's how people have uh, looked at us for a long period of time. Then, if you compared us to, because then a lot of people compared us to traditional members clubs. And so next to the traditional members clubs, we were the modern face of Australian business. We had more younger people. We had we had women, which which they don't, still don't have. You know, we had a, a diverse a diverse community. So it really just, uh, and if you compared us to, for example, uh, some of the other groups that do education, you know, or the, the primary focus is personal development and education, we were different because we focused on building relationships. So we knew that how we were different from the different bodies. We just didn't know exactly who to stand <laughs> yeah, next yeah. to. You know? But at least you've got and look. And one thing I push when I when I talk to uh, clients now, I push and say, "Is that a genuine differentiator?" Because it's easy to say, "Oh, we're different because we're better and we do this and we do that." You've got to you know look yourself in the mirror and go, "Are we different? And <laughs> and can we be different? And is this genuine differentiation?" <laughs> you know what that reminds me of? <laughs> this happens to me all the time. Makes me giggle inside when I ask people like so. You know, how are you different from uh, the other IT service provider? Oh, you know, we focus on our customers. <laughs> when people say that, I'm like, you're right, bro, but fairly soon the other person's going to say that too. <laughs> like, you right. know, like, that, is that like, yeah, so can that got, count or no? That's one no, of those non-genuine no, things. No, you've got you to find something yeah. else. And often it's in the DNA of the company when you first started it and for a lot of, you know, the, the Cub members – I often say in workshops, give me the history lesson, give me the five-minute history lesson of the company, and there'll be something that they say, and I go, that's that's the that's the DNA, that's the differentiator, that's why you genuinely started it. You might have moved on from there, and you sort of sometimes get a bit bored of what why you why why you might have thought you started that. So, differentiation is the number one pillar, right? That's the first thing you need to do. If you're different, people will spend more on your brand or your business or your product or your service as well. But what are the like, so what are the different ways? I just want to stay on this one because I just yeah. think it's such a big one and it's something that occupies my mind all the time and I'm sure it will the listeners. But what are the things you can be different in? Like is it difference in the service, a difference in the – like I don't know. What are the different things you can be different in? Yeah, look, again, you've got to weigh it up against your competitor set like you naturally did before. Um, sometimes you might be the, the last big Australian – company left compared to all the globals. So, you, so you're saying that by being Australian, we're different. Yeah. Right? Um, so, so it really does depend on where you're at. But it, so you, you, have to put, you have to put your competitors on the wall and just say, okay, what makes us different to these people? Yes. And, and it's authentic, genuine 
points of difference. So it could be around like, you know, if, if I don't know, pick a, pick a category where customer service isn't great at the moment and you could start a business. Airlines. And- <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, banking's been pretty good lately. Yeah. You know, so yeah, airlines yeah. and telcos have been yeah. absolute mayhem. So, so you sit there and you go, if you're starting something in that sense right now, you'd be going, well, we've got a real customer focus and that would be meaningful. And authentic and genuine, right? As opposed to your I think before we just go, oh, we're customer focused. Well, in that case, if people are feeling that they aren't getting a great customer experience, you could differentiate on that. But by saying we are customer focused, you therefore need to have a point of difference in your operations, whereas you may have more uh, service um uh, what's it called? When you, get, you might have more customer. You might have twice the amount of customer service people as the other company in your operation system. There might be X, Y, and Z that your team follow to ensure uh, you're happy with the product. So it can't just be the statement. It also has to be backed up by the operations. Correct. And and for many years, and I think it's still true today. Like double A, it can be a little thing that then sits in someone's mind and goes, you know what? I need, I, I should go with them. Like double AMI, Amy. How weird is that? Yeah. I didn't know what you were talking about. In my head, I was thinking, lucky you're with Amy. Yeah. Now, they that's answer, the weirdest thing that's they, ever happened to me. That, well, a big part of their business over the years has been talk to a real person, right? And they answer the phone within four rings, right? Now, that shouldn't be different, but it is. But see, that is what I was just saying. That <laughs> right. was that their operations back up their and, – and those people are lucky they're with Amy. Yeah. So so that's what you try – you're just trying to find – that piece of yeah, it's a genuine, authentic differentiation that you can latch onto. Sometimes, you know, in today's world, it could be that you automate something and you can do it a lot faster than your competitor. Um, you know, something that might have used to have taken three months can now take three hours. So therefore, you know, you've got to jump on that. Um, it could be that you've cut through a whole lot of process and red tape and, you know, whatever. And, you know, when you, when you think about, you know, back to your banking example, then a lot of the digital banks – you know, provided a, a much better digital experience than, you know, the other the other guys who they had legacy systems that were really hard to switch over. Transition. And would you say that you should focus on one major point of difference or you're happy to show several? Oh, if you've got a few, then you can work them over. Um, but even just having one is, is something you can then focus your business on. Yeah, because sometimes I feel like if you had too many though, one would lose its impact. Like you'd lose – sometimes when you have one – yeah. Sorry. Yeah. When you have, if you had multiple, the message kind of can yeah. be a bit lost. Whereas if you have one to focus on, you can really aim your marketing, your systems, your ops, everything around that. Correct. One thing. And you know, back to my advertising days, you know, in a in a any sort of message, you only want one message because people can't in you know in in that quick snapshot of time. Um, you know, some people in TV ads or digital ads now still try and plow three or four messages into a into a fifteen second or thirty second you know video. No, you do one. And do four different videos with one in each. We want, I want to come back to talking about that because I don't want to. I, I don't want to lose track of the four <laughs> pillars of how to build a great brand. Yes. But I do want to come back to delivering a message that is essential. Yeah. So so be different. Yeah. Pillar one of building. Second brand. one is be relevant. Right. You have to be relevant to a target audience. Now, you can actually be a successful brand by being highly different, but only relevant to a small percentage of the population, like Chanel. Right. Highly highly different but targeted at probably 1% or 2% of the population, still very successful. Then you've got brands like, I don't know, Tim Tam, highly different, highly relevant, back to your chocolate, right? So Brown. So you've got to have, I mean, at the end of the day, unless there's a need out there for a customer or a potential customer, you haven't got a business. Mm. So 
that relevance is highly important, and and some brands lose relevance over time. And how did so? How did you make Chanel relevant? What's the relevance of Chanel if you focus on? 2%? Well, then you you focused at a you know a, a quite an upmarket um, you know stylish, fashionable, you know um, wealthy because of the price um, you know of that, and and you've got to be highly relevant to them. So you got to pick your audience and just be re- and be okay, relevant. So be to them. relevant to your audience. Correct. And how do you know what is relevant to your audience? Well, you've got to talk to them. And this is the thing that a lot of people don't do, right? They'll be sitting there, start a business five years ago, highly relevant because they're out in the market going, you know what, there's a big gap here. We're going to start something that's different. And then over time, the audience need might shift a little bit and all of a sudden some other competitors come in and start playing to the new need. And so you've always got to be out there understanding what your customers want. And a big question I ask when we get to the business planning piece is what are your customers going to need from you as a company over the next five years? Not today, not yesterday. The next five years. So, so that relevance piece is, uh, you know, and then you've got brands like banks and telcos and supermarkets and things that are highly relevant because we need them every day, right? So they're always going to be highly relevant. Um, but again, but is that okay? But but what's not relevant? Well, I guess banks are relevant to a broader set of people. Chanel's relevant to a smaller set of people. Regardless, if there's people. Something's going to be relevant. Yeah. So come back to your Coca-Cola, right? Who would have ever thought that the main Coca-Cola brand would become less relevant over time because of, you know, um, health trends, right? But guess what Coca-Cola did? They created a whole lot of other types of drinks that were relevant to the audience that thought that particular brand wasn't as relevant to them as it used to be. But but you but it hasn't got the Coca-Cola brand on those drinks. So how no, does it, it has down it has on the back saying, you know, by the Coca-Cola company. So it's endorsed and you know the quality is going to be there because it's, you know, Fanta as part of Coca-Cola or, you know, the 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 um energy drinks. That's what I'm looking oh, for. The energy drinks, you know, like that they've got they've got a brand oh, there. Power rate. Power rate. Water, you know, they've got water brands. Um so pump pump. So yeah. what whatever that brand you know, so that's classic portfolio management of brands. Um, you know, the beer brands have done that brilliantly over time. You went back 20 years, Foster's, VB, then it was Carlton Draft, now it's the craft beers, but guess who still owns them all? CUB or yeah. Lion Nathan or what, uh, Lion Nathan's now. So, and, and what you're saying is these companies are just staying relevant to modern times. Brands that fail to stay relevant to modern times are traditional members clubs who didn't <laughs> become more diverse and inclusive, yes. you could argue. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And and therefore new brands like Cub came out and captured this new generation of, of business uh, owners and leaders coming through who were looking for uh, a community that was more yeah. relevant to them. Yeah. So that's a good example. And, you know, I read something, I can't remember when, it was in a book about Coca-Cola and about how it, it, it rose to, like why it became so powerful. And, and this may be false, I'm, you'll probably know, but apparently when Coke first started – um, was during the uh, – uh, or around the prohibition in the US. And so people didn't have alcohol to kind of stimulate their mind. And so what people started doing was drinking this this sugar drink, which would keep their mind – would give them energy, give them a bit of creative juices and flowing, but they'd still have their sense their, – their wits about them. And so it became really important for – you know, a lot of business people would use it for energy. A lot of artists would use it for creativity, and it became on trend. Is that true? I, I'm not sure about that bit. Kind of sounds. Prior to that, it was it was a medicinal drink. 
So for people who weren't feeling very well, um, really, yeah, that's where that's where the original start of it came from. Okay, um, yeah, I, and I, but anyway, just in in to keep the theme going, yeah, you know, you could kind of argue while alcohol didn't become irrelevant, it just had to disappear for a bit. Coca Cola became more relevant because people were looking for an alternative drink to stimulate their mind. Correct, absolutely. And then the third pillar is. Um, David Acker called. Um, they called it a steam. Now it's 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 a hard word to understand. It's, it's unpacked in two ways. One is a sense of popularity, right? Brands can have this sense of momentum, right? Afterpay, right now, you know, there's brands that you just go, wow, they've got a sense of momentum. They're going somewhere. And as a consumer, even if you haven't used it, you go, this is a popular brand. I'm, I, I want to get involved in that brand. Um, and the other half of that is is the sense of perception of quality, right? You may not have driven a Holden or a Toyota car. But you've got an opinion on it, you know, because you might have spoken to a few people who had them. You might have seen one. You might have, you know, sat in one as a passenger, but you've never driven one, but you've still got an opinion on it. That's like, that's like <laughs> me saying Toyotas, they just last decades. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so so that's that third pillar. And that's the bit where brands can lose a bit of momentum, right? Um, you know, I remember years, I remember about 20 years ago working uh, and using this model, we were working on uh, Jim Beam as a brand and it was losing a bit of that sense of momentum you know the beer brands were seen as a bit cooler, and uh, and then anyway, we off the back of that, we read um, the, the the team there and 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 the agency I was at redeveloped. You know, we 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 took the what was a Jim Beam and Cola can, which but we created one that was looked like a nice bottle and almost like a premium beer, so that you could have it at a pub, and it, and it felt like the brand was starting to come back and. Um, you know, not being, I suppose, as Westy or Bogany as as it might have been before, which was the what the research was saying. So, you, you can certainly look at brands and and get the momentum and that sense of quality back into them. You can turn brands around. Um, and and but to the popularity. So, I mean, we've got point of difference, d- differentiation, relevance, popularity. How do you generate that popularity? Yeah, well, that's the that that's it's, that's it's, one of the hard things, right? In terms of getting that momentum and getting that out there, that's a that's a bit of the holy grail of how do you get, you know, marketing in that sense to help you. You could even argue that it's um, – what's the, we've only done three of the pillars, have we? Yeah, Is yeah. There, so Because you could argue that so far that's the hardest one. Yes. Because that means you need to get the masses on board yeah. or at least get people Well, all those, all those that it's relevant to, we need to get them on board, particularly if it's feeling like it's a brand that's just falling off and not being – as popular as it used to be. And there's so many brands over time that you, like 20 years ago, you go, wow, yeah, that was a really cool brand. And now it's disappeared. Um, or it's, you know, it's not, not around as much as it did. So, I mean, one of the other brands I worked on years and years ago was Chupa Chups and, you know, it had become a bit of a, a lollipop for kids. And then all of a sudden it got back in the clubs and, you know, we, we turned it around with some pretty cool advertising that was sort of more targeted, you know, university age students. And if, if it became cool to them, then all of a sudden the, the teenagers thought it was cool and, and um, you know, I think one, there was a Worked year. Worked on there, me, I love it. Yeah, and, and you know, I think in Australia at one point they had a 20 times increase in, wow. in, in Chupa Chups. So there's, there, there are things you can do to get that momentum back. So it's kind of like brand. make it cool. Like yeah. you made Chupa Chups cool. Yeah. You know, so make your brand cool. Yeah. So And it's easy to say. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hard I was to just do. About that. That's really hard. <laughs> really hard to do. Yeah. But it's also – you've also got to – when some – you know, that, that – Part of that's also that sense of quality. So that when someone finally does go and try it, then they're going to go, great. So I remember campaigns, I'm going back to the 90s now, Dr Pepper came out to Australia and I remember it being a very cool campaign and everyone went and tried it and went, well, it's not really my taste in Australia, whereas in American taste, it was fantastic. 
So sometimes that perception of quality then falls off and that whole third pillar just unravels. Um, you know what could be a way um, to make your brand, I guess, popular to your to your to the people that it's relevant to, and and I reckon it's actually happening quite well today. Like it's a newer thing, like a newer being the past five years thing. Um, is when brands um, demonstrate their values more and are kind of more authentic towards their beliefs and a cause, because while the brand's not um, popular. It may, it may not everyone not your your whole market might not be using this brand because the company might not be a huge company, but the people who know about it think it's cool yeah. because it aligns with their beliefs and and it's an authentic brand. The tone of voice of the brand is is um, uh, is unique and it's 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 of that brand. They get it, you know. So that that could be a way yeah, yeah. To, to make it, a brand cool. It absolutely does, and it and that also ties in a little bit towards. So part of that makes it bit more different, a bit more relevant. I think it covers quite a few of the pillars and the last one being knowledge. And often we talk about brand awareness, right? Everyone goes, oh, that's a that's a catchphrase. I need, I need more awareness of my brand. What You don't need more awareness of your brand. You need more knowledge of your brand. We want people to understand the brand. Um, you know, Qantas, most Australians could reel off five or six facts about Qantas, you know, white kangaroo, red and white, the colours, Queensland and Spirit Northern Territory, Australia. Australia. Queensland and Northern Territory aerial services was the. So there's a lot we and and they invented and, business class. Did you know that? Yeah, Qantas invented business class. Yeah, and, and a Qantas employee invented those little, the little raft things that should. I only know this because it's actually on the Qantas plane <laughs> in the video. <laughs> yeah, you in know, the, video. the, the yeah, raft, yeah. The, the sorry, the slide. Yeah, Qantas employee invented that. So it, there's some amazing things that we're quite proud of. The music, you know. Um, we, we always hear every time you hop on the plane, it's always playing. So, again, that's the brand recall. So there's a brand. But if I picked a random American or European airline, you wouldn't be able to do any of that. So there's a sense of knowledge and understanding uh, of a brand, and that's that's that deeper thing that you need to do, you know, any company. if you So, you know, different, relevant, that sense of quality and popularity, but also you just need people to really deeply uh, know a lot more about your brand than the competitors. And, and that's the fourth pillar. But again, I mean, a point of difference, I can see how you can actually physically go and do that. Yeah. Um, be relevant to your client. I, you, could, you can sit in a room and figure out how, how we can be relevant. Um, popularity, it's harder. Maybe I guess that, that means you actually have to do a great job um, and then therefore serve a lot of people, be, you know, just be a good company. And then knowledge. How are you how, – how do you get people to learn about your company or even care enough to learn about yeah. your company? And that's about, that's about how you market the campaigns, the advertising, the communication. So there's some brands that do really well across all four pillars. Um, I haven't seen the more recent results, but I, I know that it, all the original ones I saw, like Tim Tam I mentioned before, very different, very relevant. Um, you know, everyone knows about it. Quite cool. They're now doing all the new, you know, all the new flavors of them. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not into that. Don't don't fix what's not broken. <laughs> Just keep Just keep hits. the original. Yeah. And then we all know a fair bit about about it, and it's Arnott's and Arnott's. whatever else, right? Um, Qantas, I just mentioned, would be very strong on all four pillars. Um, so it's a matter of and and what happens if you're tracking that over time? And brands don't change overnight. You know, maybe once every three years you do a bit of a dipstick to understand well which ones, where have the pillars gone, and and uh, and how they unpack it. So. I've got a fun. I mean, I've got a fun example that I that I often use how it changes, and because I've got a I've got a theory uh, um, around why people want to become more like brands, 
and why brands want to become more like people, right? The Do br- tell. The brands like people is comes onto the customer experience stuff we'll talk about, right? Why do people want to become more like brands? Because you, you talk about people's personal brands. Oh, what's my personal brand? And so one of the great examples um, is uh, Kevin Rudd, right? In 07, highly different. All of a sudden we are seeing him on Sunrise, you know, sort of an everyday person. Um, he was, uh, you know, very different in that, you know, he, sp- he spoke uh, Mandarin, um, you know, um, had a very successful uh, wife in the corporate world as well. Um, so we, we and, and, he, and he sounded like he understood the, the local Australian, so we, he, we thought he was very relevant to us. He had this sense of popularity over, um, you know, John Howard at the time who'd been in uh, as the Prime Minister for 10 years. So it was, there was a feeling of change and could we get someone else in there? Um, and we felt like we knew a bit more about this person, right, because he was out there and on the telly. So, you know, if, you, if I unpack Kevin Rudd, the brand, in 07 and then, and then you know. He was the, different. He was relevant. Seemed popular. And I knew a fair bit about him. him, right? And then, and and the great late Neil Lawrence, um, one of the great advertising pe- people, he came up with Kevin 07 that just, you know, perpetuated that, and and all of a sudden, you know, one of the landslide type wins. By 2010, we were going. Mm, he's not as different as from many of the other politicians. You know, he said a lot, but isn't as relevant to where I'm at. Yeah, probably hasn't got that sense of momentum because the party's bickering with him and they're trying to take him over. And I actually now know a fair bit more about him. And there's some things I still really like and some things I might not. And so it's classic brand theory could explain how a person's brand can go from highly successful to maybe having some of those pillars um, um, dropping start, a bit. Start rocking and, a bit. And if you understood that, you can actually turn that around. Because the other thing when I say why brands like people and people like brands, we forgive people once normally, right? Most people, if someone makes a mistake, does something, even if it's bad, we go, you know what? The relationship means more than than the issue. Right? When it's five times, we go, I'm over this. This is not a valuable relationship (laughs) anymore. (laughs) Brands are the same, right? We've There's many, many people that have forgiven Vodafone for the Vodafone in the early 2010s, right? But they only made one mistake. And they've actually worked really, really hard ever since. And people who subscribe um, have Vodafone, uh, Vodafone accounts are very happy now. Um, so, so brands will come back. Um, we'll forgive them once. If brands make multiple mistakes over time, then we won't. So there is a whole analogy around around that. And and you know what else is amazing? Just it's just another piece, a great piece of branding. What you said. I thought Kevin 07 was like something some teenage boy made up in high school, you know, during the election, it just picked up and everyone started Kevin Kevin 07. So that was actually orchestrated by branding someone you knew or a branding expert who actually created that and what they put it out to the press and. Yeah. Yeah. And and they, and and the, and the election campaigns were all around Kevin 07. There's only been about, and this is, and I was actually talking to, uh, um, uh, um, uh, a couple of uh, ministers yesterday, and uh, and we just happened to get onto this topic, and I and I said there's only been about four or five famous advertising campaigns in elections in Australia, and funnily enough, the majority of them have ended up leading to that person winning the campaign. So there was the it's time, Gough Whitlam, you know, 1975, it's time, it's time, it's time. Um, then you know, Kevin 07 was another one. Um, uh, you know, 
the, the Democrats, whilst they didn't, um, you know, clearly get into power, but they certainly won a lot more votes by doing "keep the bastards honest." You know, was 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 their phrase back in the back in the seventies. Um, and then you see, you know, the Americans are a lot better at these oh, slogans. They, right? they got it down you know, all the way with LBJ and you know the, yeah. the, the the stuff more recently. So what Trump I, did, yeah, make America great again, yeah, was just like if you hear his message, like regardless if you like him or follow him. Or, I personally give a fuck. I'm in Australia, but but you know what he's saying, why it's important. Like he take like that first election when he was doing his things on the TV, his rallies and things. The way he, you could just see how perfectly crafted the communication of the message was to the point where you're like, oh my god, yeah, this yeah. is this is true. Like the swamp has damaged the thing. They're not caring about us anymore. We need someone to come in and like, it, yeah. and, and that was and he was, did that. He did that state by state by state. There's been a lot written about this, and and I think the media were going, this is weird. He's saying 13 different things in 13 different days in 13 different states. That they knew what they were saying at that, that point, being relevant to that audience, is, right? So. So I, I have found it quite surprising over the years, and I've actually written quite a few articles on election advertising, um, and and I'm not quite sure why I, I, any of the parties don't do more famous advertising. Um, Where yeah. could people find your articles? Uh, they are all sitting on my uh, – the cheapest way to find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all sitting on my uh, on my website, which is just www.andrewbillybaxter.com.au, and there's okay. a blog section and literally every article I've ever done and every podcast I've ever done and whatever else are all sitting in there. Um uh, you know, I, all of those articles I wrote for the Australian. So for those that have got uh, that are subscribed to the Australian, you can actually just you know jump on Australian and type in Andrew Baxter and election. I'm going to do that after this. And, I'd love to read. That. And there's a whole lot of stuff. Um, I, I, from, I think about four election campaigns in a row, I wrote an article around election advertising and and what should or shouldn't happen. So um, it's a really interesting topic. Um, the, the other little fun fact before we get back onto uh, other things is um, in Australia we're not allowed to lie in advertising. It's illegal. ACCC Trade Practices Act. The only time you're allowed to falsely advertise is political advertising. No. Yeah. That's so typical. <laughs> you got to respect their like <laughs> ability to you know, to to keep that like that. Yeah. So I think I think some of the independents are trying to um, put a motion up at the moment to change that. It it actually got tested by um uh, I think in the High Court or the Supreme Court about 20 odd years ago and the definition of of why you're not allowed to falsely advertise, uh, is around, um, you know, commercial outcomes, you know, cause if you say that my product's better than yours and that's not true and you get an, a competitive advantage and a commercial advantage, then that's clearly illegal. Cheating. Right. I argue. Um, so that's why it's put in place. The, the argument back then was that, um, election advertising doesn't have a commercial or economic <laughs> <laughs> outcome. And you that's could argue, hilarious. you could argue that, in a weird, much bigger way. No, I would argue it has the greatest <laughs> outcome. So anyway, that was that. That's a bit of a, a side note on that. And so, I mean, there is this. That I mean, these are great examples of how creating a brand is 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 almost step one, and 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 how it can be so powerful. Um, but the other side of things is actually what your customer experiences, I guess, with you, because like you was, it's kind of what you were saying. You can screw up once and you can, you can, as a business, overcome that or even twice, whatever the screw up is, you can make one off mistake, an outlying mistake, and, and you can recover for, from that. But you can't make several because then people lose faith in, in the brand. Yeah. So how do you look at the importance of a customer, like the journey or, yeah. or the experience? Because, I mean, and there is, there's always a journey from 
when a customer starts considering via a lot of branding and advertising a product that they might buy and there's a journey they go on until that even includes post the purchase, right, and, and the experience they have after that. So, you know, I I really recommend that people map that out, even if it's rough, you know, get, get your whiteboard out and say, well, what's the journey my customer goes on to buy my product, whether that's a service or a product? Oh, the journey to buy the product, not the journey once they're a customer. Well, both, right? Okay. So to buying the product and then the journey afterwards as well because there's no point working really, really hard to get them to buy something and then they have a really poor experience once they've bought it because um, then they're just not going to go there and they're going to go back to the competitor. So you map the entire thing out. And I've got a little cheat that um, we used to use at one of the agencies that I was at and it's uh, it's called – so that's mapping it out. Then you've got to figure out where the gaps are. Oh, actually, post this when someone writes to us and looks for a refund – it's a really poor experience and we need to fix that, right? So you've got to figure out where your gaps are and the opportunities to improve your customer experience through that journey. So map it, figure out the gaps. Then you hack it, right? So hack it, fix it, um, you know, upgrade certain areas where you know that there's you know, gain points rather than pain points. And then you should track it. Like figure out how you're, how you're going on all this stuff, you know? So map, gap, hack, track. There's a little cheat. There's a little cheat. So draw it, draw it up on the whiteboard. Yeah. Step one, step two, this is what happens. Yeah. Find it. And by gap, you mean an issue? Yeah. Issues or where we might not be as strong as a, the competitor or where we're actually offering, you know, something that's not a great experience. Um, you know, so figure out what, what that might be through the journey or even post the journey. And hack is then just fix that gap. Fix that gap. Or, or sometimes you might figure out when you're mapping it out, oh, wow. When, when we get people to do this, that really does, you know, lift the intention to purchase. So we want to highlight that and when we're hacking, we want to really, you know, double down on that area. Um, but then it's always about tracking it, measuring it. It's funny because for smaller businesses, you when you think of marketing, you don't necessarily think so much about customer experience and journey. You're mostly thinking about like, oh, Facebook, digital marketing, like you know, maybe my logo and my – being authentic or whatever's trending those days. But really, I mean, um, customer journey is part of marketing, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's, and and it, it requires people to actually sit down and say, what are our customers actually experiencing? And then like with smaller companies, for example, Cup, we've got a marketing team, but we haven't got um, – uh, a, a huge marketing team. It's not like we're focusing on other things like doing podcasts, yeah. and the, you know, but, uh, but you're never really sitting down going, okay, what is the experience of our customers right now? And how can we make that better? That That is something that smaller businesses really do need to at least consider doing. Yeah. And it's so much more complex now, right? If I go back to our wine example, if you went back a hundred years, right, the journey was you'd walk past a wine shop and they might have had a painted bottle on the wall because there was none of the outdoor that we see today. Um, and then you might have seen a one-line ad in the Argus newspaper or something, right? And that was the journey to acquire. And then once you bought it, if you liked it, you'd go back and you'd talk to the person in the shop and you'd have a good experience and they might recommend, a, you know, another wine that was similar or whatever it might have been, right? That Now you can see something in an ad or popping up on digital, all of a sudden you're at a dinner party, um, you see the same one, you like it. People have got apps out. They're scanning the load. They're scanning the label. They're figuring out where the cheapest place to buy it is. They can order it online if they want. Or it says the nearest place to buy it's here. Um, so the whole journey is completely different, and it's, and it's complex because 
you still want to have that human interaction when you walk into the bottle shop. You still want to have that, oh, you know, what do you reckon? Is there anything similar? Is there anything similar at a slightly less price or whatever it might be? You want to have that interaction that feels like, um, you know, and but at the same time, you also want that digitized, automated, personalized, you know, stuff coming. So that balance between digital and human is critical. Yeah, and it, it it gets lost these days. Like there's a place uh, for the listeners who know, who, who go to Berry or have been to Berry, the, the kind of country coastal town down south. Um, Cub has a country house there. And um, uh, and there's a bottle shop there. I think it's called the Berry Bottle Shop. The, the owner's name is Justin. He, he works in there. But I always go there. And the reason I do is because they always have a blackboard, like, you know, one of those st- uh, freestanding blackboard, uh, yeah. small black bo- blackboard things. And it always has on it written like the best $15 Shiraz or $25 Shiraz you'll ever taste. And then I'm like, fuck, that's interesting. I'm going to go check that out. Then I walk in and Justin knows everything about all the alcohols. He has things that he's, you know, um, that he's bringing in because he knows how good they are. And and he gives you that full experience. But that customer journey is I'm walking on the street. I get caught. That sign always catches my eye because it's always – they put something really like – it's really confident. It's never like yeah. funny. It's just like – holy shit, if that's true, I should probably fucking try it. <laughs> and, and I often say, you know, any small business owner, medium business owner, big business I'll say, tell me the best customer experience you've had as a consumer in the last three weeks. And, in- the, and the answers are normally, oh, my local coffee shop, he's amazing. They can see me coming. You know, she's already making my coffee or, you know, he's already making my toasted sandwich. He knows the kids' names. He pats my dog. Um, you know, that. Sometimes you can order it ahead on 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 uh, on an app if you want to, or butcher shops come up. You know, um, you might have bought a leg of pork last week, and then they're saying, "He goes, yeah, if you like the leg of pork, you might like, you know, what we've done with this, right?" So true. They're all the people experiences. Yeah, and and I often say to clients, I say, "Well, are your experiences like that with your customers? Because they're the ones you like. Why don't you treat your customers?" Yeah. And, and and my point in sharing the <laughs> pointless berry story was that that's a small business that has like a very clear customer journey. There's a lot of tourists. They know their customers are walking up the strip. They've obviously put that sign out there knowing there's going to be a lot of these customers who have rented the houses that they're going to sit around the fire, have a bottle of wine. And you make it so obvious that that's where you get the best wine for, for a good price that they're going to walk in. Once they're in, you blow them away with um, – uh, with uh, kindness and service, and they probably um, they probably have money because they're holidaying in a nice area, so they're probably going to buy a lot of stuff. You know, like you could argue that Justin from the Berry Bottle Shop has a fantastic. He's got he knows his customer journey. That yeah, guy, he does, and and so that's the piece. And and we spend so much time acquiring new customers. You know, in all of our businesses, you know, back to your social and digital, and we're always trying to figure out how we can you know get more leads and generate more business. And we often forget about well, the easiest business we can get is to is to keep loyal, you know, passionate it's customers. So true, and even just to market to your existing customers. And when I say market to your existing customers, it doesn't mean that you have to market like come buy more. You know, like you can communicate to them valuable things. No, like I always use cover as an example, but like we don't need to email our existing members. Um, that way, oh, you know, we've got this product that we can sell you now or you can do this now as well. Like you can you can communicate in other ways and that would count as marketing, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you, again, it comes back to communicating relevant things to 
the audience. And, you know, it's just, it's just building up that trusted relationship where you understand, where, where you get a sense that, well, they understand me. They understand what some of my needs might be. And that's why some, the email's saying this, or that's why the phone call I'm getting from Cub, you know, is, is this. And you could really knock out two birds, one stone. You can make it relevant and also increase their knowledge, the, their knowledge of your business. So I'm going to try to think really quickly on my feet here, but if you were a, um, like if you were chuppa chup and, oh, that's not a great example. Hey, you're chuppa chup and you can communicate to your customers that, did you know chup, the first chuppa chup was made in XY, in, in Lane Cove in 1936 by a mum who, did, you know, like, you can oh that's that's pretty cool. I, I'm happy I know that fact. You know, like, <laughs> I'll, and now I'll, I know that about Chop Chop. Yeah, I'll give you the quick backstory on Chop Chop. So, a guy called uh, Mr. Bernard founded Chop Chops in the I think late 50s, early 60s, um, and he's he was sick of you know sticky toffee lolly type things for his kids. So um, you know oh, maybe it was in the 60s, um, and he uh, and he decided to put it on a stick. Um, the logo is designed by his friend Salvador Dali. So the Chupa Chups logo was designed by Salvador Dali. No way. Yes. But see, you know what blows my <laughs> mind more than that is the fact that there was a clear problem and the problem was my kids were sticky and sugary, like their hands sucked. Put the lolly on a stick. Yeah. You know, it's so simple <laughs> but just so effective. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Everything in this world happens for a reason, doesn't yeah, it? Like it it's does. just – you just got to find out what that what that reason was. It's just these simple yeah. things that just work so well. Yeah. And I think, you know, understanding customers, if I come back to that that point you're gonna make about chopper chops, it's it's around, well, I understand that they the the fruit flavors out of the fifteen flavors in one of the tubs, the fruit flavors tend to go first. So let's launch some more fruit flavors. Right? And we'll do a pineapple flavor for Australia because Australians love pineapple and the US loves pineapple or whatever it might be. That's understanding your customers and giving them something extra. And then you can communicate to them. And, you know, so a lot of companies come out and they want to relaunch. They want to relaunch multiple products at once. And I often say, no, 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 launch one at a time. You know, get a sense of momentum back to that esteem pillar. Get a sense that, you know, the brand's always doing something. The brand's always on the move. The brand's always listening and, and learning. Um, and, uh, and you know, take your time. And uh, that, that was something we did in this market with Chopper Chops way back then. We would literally launch, you know, one flavor or four flavors or whatever it might be at once, but we'd make a bit of a, a, a big deal about each, each launch as they came out. Um, and uh, we had a lot of fun with it from an advertising point of view. And, and that's that momentum piece. Yeah. I think that's very important because like we experience that a lot. For example, um, and with media, when, when media comes out, like there's always media about Cub, it comes out, people feel that momentum. You start having people congratulate you about things that were already there. You know what I mean? But it feels it's that momentum. It's that and it's that popular. It, it come back to that sense of pop. Yeah, and it, you want to keep that train going. You don't want to. You don't want to stop. You need new things to to say all the time. Yeah, it's like being a Kardashian. <laughs> yeah, it's got to keep some weird hard. shit keep happening. Yeah, and people will keep talking. But I, I think momentum is something that people overlook a lot. And I just uh, before we start talking about the business plan, um, I just wanted to get back to that. Uh, the messaging. Yeah. So when you when you're creating messaging for for your customers, whether it be uh, for existing customers, whether it be for um, new customers, when you're creating a message, uh, what is the best way to do that? You, yeah. you mentioned just have one clear message, yeah. basically. 
Yeah, I, I will say, what is the one thing you're trying to say in this ad or this piece of communication? What's the one takeout you want the person reading it, watching it, viewing it, listening to it? What do you want them to take out? One thing. And just hammer that. Yeah. And and then and that's where creative, you know, creative people, copywriters, art directors, that's if you can if you can just give them that in your words, they can then work the magic off the back of that. Um so, you know, I mean, I think we talked last time about uh, the Ronda and Katud ads. That was all about, you know, um, uh, you know, having having people who are safe, rewarding safe drivers, right? We, we've got a, pa- a product here now that, you know, is called Safe Driver Rewards. You're going to get a cheaper policy if you continue to be a safe driver, right? That was the one message we want to get across. Well, guess what? They create Ronda, the safest driver in Australia, who saves a whole lot of money, goes to Bali, and the rest is history, right? But that that was literally the message that they were the, – the one single-minded message that they wanted to get across. Okay. Yeah. Uh, again, but what's the most important thing? If yeah. they could only remember one thing about you yeah. or about this ad, yeah. what is it? What is it? And that's what you got to say. That's what you got to say. And get that written down and then give it to somebody who, you know, is a, is a, is a, is a creative because that's what, that's what they're expert at doing. They're experts at bringing that to life in a way that – you know, is either a good story or visual or a sound or whatever, all those things we talked about earlier, they're the people that are, are very clever at bringing that to life. The problem, the, the thing that people can struggle with with this kind of creative and branding and things is, well, you don't know if you're going to get something that you like or that works, but you do have to pay for it. Yeah. It's kind of like a lawyer. Yeah. But that's why getting the strategy and the message right on paper to give to them because to be honest, if you write that down, as I said before, you know, um, we're going to reward safe drivers, you know, with cheaper policies, right? Then when you see a script or a, a, a six-word headline that's going to go on a billboard, you just you, – all you need to do is judge that against that bit of paper. And that should be an easy thing to do. What normally happens is you see the work and you go, oh, actually, that's not quite what I actually wanted to say. No, that's made me think that what I need to say is this – so you end up using the creative work to sort your strategy out and you need to get the strategy right first of what are you trying to say in this ad. And how can you get? How can you make sure you get that strategy right? Yeah. So that's the bit that I would encourage people to get sorted because you're right. So many people go, oh, yeah, the, those guys, they weren't very good. They couldn't. Yeah. But it's because in a way by presenting back the outcome of what you gave them, you're going, oh, actually, it's not actually what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, or say so. Get that's. I would encourage people to. You know, eighty percent of the most famous ads I've ever seen came from a really tight, short brief. Twenty percent came from them just being geniuses and having an idea in the shower and <laughs> all of that. But eighty percent of it came from getting that lockdown. Okay, it's understanding it. Yeah. So. so here's my target audience. Here's what they need. Here's the challenge. Here's why we're different. And this is the one thing I want to say in the ad. And. Other than being an advertising genius, you've also led, which we covered in the la- in your first episode, which I encourage listeners to um, to, to go back and listen to if, you, if you're a new listener and haven't haven't heard it yet. It's an awesome episode. But I mean, you're you're also an expert CEO and you've managed um, some of the largest uh, advertise or the largest advertising agency uh, agencies in 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 Australia in your time, and. Um, you are now also a bit of an expert in uh, creating business plans and helping. Uh, you've helped. Uh, well, you're going to help me do so, <laughs> but, but you've helped many people do that. And I guess 
the question I have around business plans is, yes, we know they're important. Everyone says they're important and they just are because you need to have a direction of where you're going. But what goes in a business plan? Well, what goes in a plan and what's important to put in it and how do you use it? Yeah. One of my frustrations growing up in the business, you're you, you always told you should be doing a plan. Um, interestingly, four out of five Australian companies do not have a plan. And I think that it's because it's too complex, too hard. They look at templates online and they go, well, I could fill that in, but how does it all link together? And where do I get all that information? And and they're often writing it themselves. They're not writing it as a team. Do you know what I also think happens, and it used to happen to Cub at its very early days, is that you do make a plan, but your plan's just not possible to act to go to to go to plan, and therefore it becomes irrelevant. So you're like, oh, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not making plans anymore because yeah. it, you know. So there is also that piece of okay, the plan, you need to be able to actually achieve your plan. Yes, you do. It needs to be very. It needs to absolutely be achievable. So. For me, you know, all all I did over time, I, I saw I was lucky enough, you know, running the big ad agency groups. So I'd go to a lot of executive strategy days of about clients. I'd obviously saw frameworks that, that the companies I worked for had, and I'd often write down, "Oh, actually, that part's really good." And and over time, um, I literally in the back of my notebook had so many different things. Oh, if I was going to do the culture one, it was those guys that had a really interesting thing. I'd probably change it a little bit like that. So what I did you know, a couple of years ago when people started asking me, I could just come and have a sit down with our exec team and help them look at what our next three to five years should look like. I said, oh, I've got a bit of an idea for, you know, how you do that. That's quite simple. It's practical. It's accountable. You know, can I try it on you guys? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. So that's how it started. And we fine tuned it over doing about 12 originally and then another 15 and then we launched it. And now we're close to having done a hundred companies in the last 18 months. So it's gone a bit silly, but it's, it, it's in two parts, and I think this is what you're saying. The first part is in what's your long-term three- to five-year strategy? What's the purpose of the company? You know, um, and, you know, give me an example of how you're living that out. What is the company doing? You know, what services are they offering? What's the vision for the company? You know, why are we – what are we doing to emotionally to sort of follow the CEO and the team over the proverbial wall, and what financial target are we setting? And then what are we going to value in our team – to underpin that. And this is where people misalign values because they'll do a set of values, but they've got no alignment to actually what the strategy is. So if you've got, if you can very clearly articulate what your purpose is, some clear examples of how you're already living out that purpose, then a clear articulation of the services or products you're offering, a clear vision, an emotional one, you know, we want to be the best or the top 10 or the fastest growing or the best place to work or whatever it might be, plus you know, a financial target that's big, hairy, and audacious. Then what are the what are we going to value in our team that underpins that? And the last piece we do on that on that almost strategy on a page is to go, well, culture's misunderstood. Because culture is actually how you live out your vision and your values. But people talk about culture as behaviors only. It's not behaviors. You can have systems and processes that cause the culture to fall over. You might say one of the things we value in our team is agility and nimbleness and flexibility. And then the processes you've got in your company. You've got to get 12 people to approve <laughs> yeah, right. you to go to the toilet. And, they just, and, and so the young people in your organisation just laugh. They go, that's, that's rubbish. That is absolute rubbish. Or, you know, you might say we're team players, but then the, the leadership team sit upstairs in fancy offices and everyone else sits downstairs. I mean, one of the things I saw with Mr. Bernard, the fa- owner of Chupa Chups, when I remember visiting their offices in the mid-1990s, he sat out with everybody else. This, this guy's running this... M- global, incredible company. It was one of the first times I saw that where a leader was just sitting with a team, right? And that's such a big symbol of being one team, right? 
So there's a whole lot of things, you know, that you need to unpack. Um, the first thing, actually, if I go back a step, is what's the world we're living in, right? Where's the industry going? What are the headwinds? What are the tailwinds? Who are our customers? Who are our customers going to be over the next three to five years? What are they going to need, as we talked about before? What is the DNA of our organisation that we want to maintain? Who are our competitors? Why are we different? So a bit of what we talked about earlier, you've got to lock all that in and we've got a way of doing that on one one page so that you can very clearly get a snapshot to go, this is exactly the world and the guardrails of how we're operating. So therefore, our purpose is going to be this, et cetera. And then mapping out a growth plan. Um, it sounds like clickbait for a headline in the Daily Daily Mail, but there's actually only five ways to grow a company, right? There's continuing to do what you currently do, right? And you might have three or four revenue streams and even Cub might have a couple of revenue streams, right? Membership, you know, um, room hire, whatever it might be. Then I go, well, what are they, where are they going to get to in three to five years? What does that look like? And you, you'll have something in your head about, oh, yeah, we could grow by 25% a year in the membership and we could do this and we could open here and we could do whatever. And then I say, well, there's only four other ways to grow the business. One is to open in new geographies, you know, Brisbane, Perth, Singapore, Parramatta. Hong Kong, wherever, Parramatta. Second one is to offer new products and services. You know, could be anything, education, whatever it might be. Third, in, your, in your case, third one is, you know, you could acquire someone. You could go, wow, we actually are really keen on that. But the fastest way to actually get us to grow is to acquire another smaller business and bring them in under us and go fast. And the fourth one, which is, or the fifth one, all up, it, the one that's often forgotten is strategic partners. Who can we partner with? Another company that aren't a competitor, but we've got similar target audiences and we could work together to actually both make money. Um, you know, sometimes that could be a technology partner. It could be whoever, right? So that's the one that is often forgotten. Mapping that out, being clear about what that find, that all adds up to, understanding what options are. So you know, it's my belief you can get your long-term strategy summarized into three pages. Interestingly, Jeff Bezos only accepts six-page documents. Anymore doesn't accept them. So if it's good enough for, you know. The world's richest man. <laughs> then it's got to be good enough for <laughs> <laughs> So then we spend the second two workshops doing, well, if that's your longer-term plan, what does year one look like? How do we execute that with excellence? Because with planning, back to your point, I mean – um, there's, a, there's a great professor at Harvard, Boris Groisberg, and he talks about um, there's effectively four not negotiables. He's, all he studied is growth. He and his team have studied growth for 20 plus, 25 plus years. And uh, effectively he says, well, and it's called the Harvard Business School 4 plus 2 rule for growth. So you can Google it and have a read about it. But it talks about the four not negotiables when you are developing a plan are a great strategy, executing with excellence, the right culture to support it, and the right structure to support it. Doesn't matter what type of company you got if you don't have all four of those. What do you mean by structure? Well, it could be you know what what what's you know what types of people do we need where you know in terms of organisational structure you know this is how we need to set it up we need extra salespeople or we might need you know extra finance people whatever it might be but sort out because often as you grow you're piecing together things and you're not quite putting the right structure in place for that growth. Um. So that's a big part of, um, of, of playing out uh, how that works. And then, and then I'm a big believer in there's only eight pillars of executional excellence. If I get to that second point, you know, and, I, and my thing's in alphabetical order, so you remember them. So marketing, obviously with my background, um, new business or business development pipeline, you know, you need to get that right. Operations, you need to get every system, process, efficiencies, whatever it might be, because that's where your margin comes from. Your product or whatever your offer is, that's – 
we start with the product, but just doing this in alphabetical order so you remember it, MNOP, there's no Q. Um, R is your relationships with your clients and your customers. We've talked a lot about that today. So often when people write plans, they forget to write down, you know, who are our key customers and what are they going to need and how can we service them really well, exactly what you were talking about before. Um, and then we talk about strategic partners that I just touched on. And then we talk about talent, you know, people, culture, leadership, training, development. Um, Which so I always think is the hardest. It is I hard. really do think it's the, it's the most restrict. If, if I could cl- click a finger and obtain great team members, I swear Cub would be at least 10 times as big as it is. Yeah. At least. If I could just go bang, this is what I need, bang. Here's some people we all know, like, and trust, and they're actually capable of doing the job. Yeah. You, you, it, would, it would be endless to scale yeah. to, to, for, for any company yeah. to grow. And that's I, that's and, such and a restriction. In my CEO days, I would spend a lot of time, even as a CEO, um, doing a lot of the interviews to make sure that you got the right cultural fit within an organisation, the right types of people that you needed. You know, I'd let the team figure out if they had the right skill sets to deliver on the role that they had going. Um, and the last part, the, the if you get those first seven right, the MNOP, Marketing New Biz Ops, product, and then the RST, relationships with customers, um, your strategic partners and your team, then- That's a lot to get right, right? though. <laughs> it is. And then, then the ultimate outcome is your financials. So I would often n- not worry as much about financials. If I could get those seven things right, you're perfect. And if you think about organisations you've been involved in that haven't gone so well, oh, well, we lost a couple of key team members or two of our biggest clients left or- you know, operationally, you know, we weren't as smooth or pipeline-wise we had five big tenders last year. We normally win 40% of them. We didn't win any of them. So the excuse as to why you had an average year is in those seven buckets that then affect the financials. Um, other way around, I'd often have a general manager, and I think I mentioned last time I had about 12 companies reporting to me at Publicis, and, and I'd often have a new GM would start or a new MD or CEO, and they would say, you know what, fantastic, day one, I'm so excited. I'm going to turn this whole company around on people and culture. And I'd go, that's one of the seven things you're going to do. Or they're going to turn the whole business around on pipeline, new business, biz dev. That's one of the seven things you're going to do. So so you really do need to focus on all seven. And, you know, we've got a way of unpacking that, brainstorming that, figuring out what you might need to do in year one. And then what's setting the priority? Pro- and what's the priorities? What are the goals first? And, you know, we, we did one the other day. They came up with 60 goals for the first year. It was so a big, it was a big company. Would. And I said, good luck. What are the 10 that are going to deliver the biggest impact. And then we prioritise them, write one page action plan. So as an ex-CEO, all I ever wanted was practical. So so the, the summary version of our business plan is 15 slides long, right? St- we still give people the 160 to 200 page version that we develop um, over time. Um, but we've just tried to make it practical. All of us, including me, are ex-CEOs. So we've deliberately you know, in a way avoided, um, you know, whilst we're acting as consultants, we've all actually run businesses, been on the tools. Um, and we we want it, We know that people are busy. So if you can get an exec team in a room four times, six hours at a time, then, and we literally write the plan in there. So it's not, we don't go outside. We know that we, we need them to make That's decisions. That's essential. So, Otherwise it doesn't happen. Yeah. So 15 minutes after we finish, we give them the plan of, of the four sessions. So that's, it's, look, I think one thing you said was very important is that, yeah, you've got the three to five year plan, but we also have a one year plan, which I think is the most important because if you screw that first year up, well, the, fucking, the next four are gone. <laughs> You're gone. That's so gone. That's so right. it's really about, okay, what's, how do we make sure we don't screw the first year up? Yeah. 
and give it give it the best chance to get on that journey to your three to five years. So it's um I mean we look you can see I'm, I'm I get quite excited about it because I go it's just it's just practical and normal and and all it does to your point earlier, your question earlier it just takes all the key things that you should have at a plan and bundles it up in a way and I mean I think the last thing is just from a from a my marketing point of view we do it in a very visual and a storytelling way because unless you can visualize that plan and all of your employees can visualize it and unless they can storytell it then again there's no point because it'll just end up on the file server and three years later you'll look at it again. So so we that's that's my little marketing spin on it is that it's quite the outcome's quite visual and, and it's and it's a story. We really need to sit down and just do cubs. Laura's gonna laugh because I reckon every podcast guest that comes on, I end up working with them. Cub ends up working <laughs> with them. So I did all of them. Literally Michaela just doing our branding now, Gail's building our app the lead list with Ali. We, we, we get all the new things Cub users come from the podcast. And, and a lot of it, I mean, you know, we were talking before the podcast, all of this stuff is in your head and the team's head. All this does is drag it out and, to your point, get it down on paper so that you're all on the same page, literally. Um, and that's a big part of it because so often, you know, a, a CEO or a head of finance will go and do a plan and then show everyone, here's the plan. And then people go, well, I haven't been part of that. So um, I think also getting everybody involved. Um, and I've had some companies who have just started, they've got nine people in it. They go, I'm bringing everyone, even the kid that's the graduate, they're coming. And, and we've, we, we did one about a year ago and we just went and did year two plan for them and they're now 25 people. And I'm like, wow, isn't that amazing? Mm. You know, That is fun at first. We used to do that. But you, I found anyway that as a company matures, it's just so much easier to just go with the leadership team, yes. create the plan, then go to the team and say, guys, here's the plan. We want to hear your thoughts on it. And, you know, and, and, and I find that people also like to see that you've come with a great plan. You're organized as a leader. You've yeah. got things. As the company grows. Yes. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, That's just been my experience. Yeah. Anyway. But anyway, I think we've got to wrap up because we've gone well over time, but we needed to because I, I really did want to – I really did want to ask you all these things about about all these things in your head. <laughs> <laughs> You've dragged it out of my head. That's yeah, good. no, it's awesome. It's just such it's such it's just such relevant things that sometimes it's it's kind of like boxing. Like you need the fundamentals to be good. You, you can't go and learn the advanced things. And I think sometimes what happens with businesses, like you kind of get caught up on all these other random things you try to be tricky and like you're ahead of the curve and doing what you see other really big companies do with their billions of dollars and sometimes it's like well look just sit down and focus on the absolute um essentials that like the the fundamentals like you you need to nail your fundamentals and yeah. i really think that's a lot of the stuff we covered today was i mean it was fundamentals on branding fundamentals on messaging fundamentals on um uh, on on creating a plan, so it, focus on your fundamentals. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. right. Well, it's true. Get those right, then you can do all the other the other, um, you know, to your point, trickier things. Yeah. Well, once you get bigger, you have more money. Once you have more money, you've got more everything. You have more people to help you do more things. Like if we had, for example, if we could afford to have someone that did nothing except for focus on customer experience, like on the journey. Sorry, on the customer journey. Well, then your customer journey would probably be pretty good. But you've you know. Is that really the best allocation for that fund, for, for that amount of money at this time in the business? Uh, probably not. So, you know, it's like it's about do the fundamentals, get big, then do everything else. <laughs> but you still got to prioritise what those things are. 
So, yeah, shit. Yeah. All right, take that back. All right, <laughs> so thank you so much. That was fantastic. And and um, and um, we want everyone to go to actually. They may as well go to your website to get. I think it'd be great for people to see your uh, your blog. The website was uh, andrewbillybaxter.com.au, and then the twenty four hour business plan.com.au is the business plan one. Awesome. And if you want to check out Cub, go at Club of United Business on Instagram. You can find us there. Thank you once again. No worries at all. Good fun. Hope you enjoy the show.